to Shot Reverse Shot, a film and television podcast in which we talk about a theme which changes from episode to episode. My name's Edwin Davis, and joining me this week through the Mogul of Satellite Technology is Emily Benita. Hi Emily, how's it going? I'm alright, Ed. Uh, just uh, just drying my eye there, because before we came on uh, to record this, Ed was regaling me with facts from Babe, uh, mm-hmm. the filming of the movie Babe, and they're all lovely, and I had sausage made from pig this morning so now i'm starting to wonder whether i should not eat pigs anymore (laughs) because all the pigs sound so adorable and and clever yeah it's the cleverness really that kind of makes you think yeah if if they were just adorable but dumb yeah you'd be able to justify yourself but if they can learn if they can learn how to act reasonably well and retain that knowledge for years afterwards then yeah probably probably shouldn't As, as delicious and as magical an animal as they are as uh, Homer Simpson once referred to them. And I think, yeah, I mean, there's, those are all the reasons that I don't eat Zac Efron. <laughs> you can't eat a triple fry. <laughs> it's too valuable. He's too valuable to the delicate Hollywood ecosystem. It's too, it's too um, hyphenated. We can't. <laughs> so how has your week been uh, culturally? Have you have you kind of what I mean, obviously one of the things you've been watching this week will be t- we'll be talking about in the main topic but uh, have you kind of sampled anything this week that kind of really uh, caught your attention? Yes, I watched Eddie the Eagle because now I've finally mm. got time to kind of start perusing through my Netflix list. And yes, I am still working on from the charming and fun <laughs> light things and then working my way up to all of the worthy dark things and I really enjoyed it not just because Hugh Jackman looks eerily like Simon Cowell and Christopher (laughs) Walken turns up for a hot minute. Taron Edgerton is having a whale of a time and Jo Hartley is doing her retro mum very nicely. I also seem to be the only person not yet watching normal people Mm-hmm. Um, which dropped in the UK this week, and various I've had various reports of of much emotions. I think it's because I'm also one of the only people who was like not bowled over by the novel, and found the very ending of it basically a horror. <laughs> I'm like, <laughs> why is everyone saying how lovely this is? This is horrible. In the same way that I am, I one of the many hills that I will die on, Ed is that The Notebook is a horror story. <laughs> and anyone who says it's romantic is a psychopath. So, yeah, I don't know. It still looks... I mean, it looks very nice, but, like, t- 12 episodes, even if each one of them are half an hour. I think there's something really lovely. I almost wish I were, like, 17, 18 and watching it, because I think it what it does do really well, what I remember the book doing really well, is giving credence to that, to being that age and not <clears throat> and, and being taken seriously and that you are developing into the person that you're going to be in that kind of like last summer before you go to university and then kind of developing over those years. To give that like that importance instead of that dismissal, I think is really valuable. And I kind of wish that I was that age because then watching that now, like in May, ahead of ahead of that summer. And then again, 
because it's so difficult to watch anything without the context of of covid just my heart breaks for all of all of the young people that age who aren't going to have that kind of summer um mm. because summer's effectively been been cancelled and that's so huge at that time of your life like how vivid that is to me even now like that last summer before going away to university so mm. yeah i don't know i mean i might part of me is also like do i do i want to hurt myself <laughs> watching this i'm like i'm already kind of my uh here's here's one here's one i'll share from my therapist for everyone she said to me you are already outside of your comfort zone in all of this don't worry about trying to get some comfort and get back in it and i was like thank you so that's a free one for everyone so that's it i'm like oh do i really want to completely wreck myself Mm. I don't think I do anymore, Ed. I'm trying very hard not to do that anymore. <laughs> yeah, that's that's definitely understandable. Like for me this week, I haven't really done anything that's kind of like really challenging myself. Like I was talking to you about how I found someone had done a letterbox list of the they shoot pictures, don't they? List of like the 1000 greatest movies and I realized I'd seen like two thirds of them. I thought I, you know, I should ideally I'd end up seeing all of them, but I should probably at least have seen the top 100. And that's why I watched like uh, Tarkovsky's mirror the other week, which is like a really good movie. And I was really glad I've seen it, but then I haven't felt the urge to kind of watch like Audette or, uh, you know, any of the other movies on that list that seem super duper heavy. Yeah. Uh, Instead, this week I watched uh, David Byrne's True Stories, which is uh, just a lovely, funny, odd collection of tabloid stories that he picked up over the years of touring that he decided to make a whole movie about where he said, what if all of these stories took place in the same town? What if that town was called Virgil, Texas? And what if I was a character in the movie, but also the narrator? <laughs> so it was kind of like, what if I made a movie where there was really no line between uh, the 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 audience and the uh, the characters, and that everyone just kind of like bursts into song every so often? It's a very lovely movie, and uh, John Goodman in it is particularly great in it as a lovelorn kind of small town businessman who at one point takes out an ad. Uh, on television like saying that he wants to get married and he's looking for potential partners and he describes himself as saying um he says something like i'm six two and have maintained a panda-like physique (laughs) (laughs) oh my god that's my new lockdown goal panda-like physique (laughs) gonna get me some bamboo yes 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 (laughs) actually oh ed you mentioning audet there Mm-hmm. Um, or or it as I'm trying to learn Danish, as, so my pronunciation might be quite off. But I have also been absolutely inhaling the Hollywood Reporter roundtables on YouTube. Mm. They are an absolute trove. They are so interesting, and everyone's favourite um, <laughs> eschatolog- uh, eschatological. I can never say that word. Sort of do do doom and glooming um, screenwriter Paul Schrader um, <laughs> said that he wasn't sure how to finish First Reformed, and then he mm-hmm. watched um, Audet and was like, "Oh yeah, yeah, now I know." <laughs> so <laughs> there's a connection for you, as you and I are both. I mean, 
First Reformed, it's a weird film to say that you're a fan of. Mm. Fundamentally and forever changed by it. <laughs> yeah, thinking of with great frequency. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So yes, there's a there's a little connection there for you. There's a tidbit. Give me all the mm. all the babe backstory. There's one for you. Thank you. Uh, yeah. <laughs> cool. cool. Schrader's is very good at stealing the endings of other movies for his. Because <laughs> he. <laughs> Uh, and you know, I mean that in the perfectly uh, uh, as a compliment because you know, like several of his screenplays, he literally just borrowed or stole the ending of um, Bresson's Pickpocket mm. for the ending of American Gigolo is basically the ending of that movie. And then when he made Light Sleeper, which for me is probably his best movie, um, he uh, I remember seeing. I think it's in Mark Cousins's The Story of Film where he basically said, I suddenly realised I used the ending for the wrong movie and it should be used for this one, so I just did it again. <laughs> I, like, <laughs> I, I, I admire many things about Paul Schrader as a writer, but I think his willingness to be just very open about, yeah, I, I like what I like and I'm going to crib from the people who I think are the best at making movies is, uh, is, is refreshing, I think. <laughs> Otherwise, this week, mainly I've just been, as, as a, a lot of people have, I've mainly been playing video games because it's kind of a nice way to relax um, at the end of a day of playing video games for work. <laughs> um, but uh, the one I've spent the most time playing is uh, Persona 4 Dancing All Night, which is a rhythm game spin-off of a JRPG that I have never played. <laughs> but I have watched a playthrough of it, and uh, I quite enjoyed the world of that series, which is like, you know, half fighting monsters in a dreamscape uh, in order to save people and half you know deciding if you should say bas- play basketball with someone in order to build up your friendship <laughs> which is kind of a, the sort of balance i like to see in a game and uh, i enjoy i like all those characters i find them all very fun and charming so having a game where you just dance to songs from the original game and remixes is you know just very relaxing for me even though that game on some of the harder difficulties is ridiculous and very hard and requires real split second reflexes but it's a very good kind of like oh, i'll do it once more oh you know i messed that one up i'll play again i'll play again and then suddenly like it's 11 at night and you're like oh that that ate up some time yeah. <laughs> that ate up some quarantine time but yeah that's going cheap on uh playstation now with the two other games that are also spin-offs of persona installments in the persona series so yeah if anyone wants to grab those they're, they're very cheap and they're very fun <laughs> so we actually have some news this week you know we've been saying that we've kind of been holding off on the news stuff because there's not really been a huge amount of really interesting happening uh that wasn't coronavirus related and i mean all these stories in some ways stem from the impacts of the coronavirus on the film industry but i think that they're, they're so seismic that they're worth discussing the first of which was that the Oscars had a meeting this week where they voted for, well, you know, the, the board in charge of the Oscars voted for some changes for this year to reflect the fact that movies aren't being released normally as they would be. And, you know, people are having to adjust their release schedules and things like that. So it kind of feels crazy to imagine that people will have to kind of vote on the Oscars in a normal way or that you can't take things, uh, the, the changes into account. So they made a number of adjustments for eligibility this year, first of which was they said that movies that 
were released on streaming but ha- uh, were intended to have a, phys- a theatrical release will be eligible for Oscars. Previously, movies that didn't play for a week in Los Angeles County would not be eligible for Oscars, but now they're saying, you know, everyone's plan's been upended. If your movie went straight to streaming, then you know, we'll consider you, you know, it's not fair to be excluded because a pandemic swept the world and then suddenly you had to rearrange your release schedule. They also loosened the eligibility for when, where movies can play to be uh, considered for nomination. Previously, as I said, you had to play for a week in LA County. This year, once theatres reopen, uh, they will accept movies that played in LA, New York, the Bay Area, Atlanta, Chicago, and Miami, essentially to basically say, these are where a lot of people who are our members live, so we're not going to force you to get on a plane and risk exposure in order to vote. You can go to theatres that are near where you live, which is, you know, very good. (laughs) and definitely seems to be uh, a step in the right direction they also announced this will be the last year of physical screeners so they won't be sending out dvds anymore it's just going to be links which i'm sure will go over very well with the older contingent of Mm. oscar voters but those are all i think they all seem to be very common sense moves in terms of what is happening right now and you know acknowledging that the oscars for being a kind of very slow to react institution and something that kind of fights against a lot of changes in the industry are willing to say yeah things are messed up right now we should try and make things as easy as possible for sure and I think there's a lot that is um kind of been a long time coming like even just thinking about sending out physical screeners in terms of Mm. security and leaks and and piracy like, yeah. like surely a watermarked sort of time restricted link would be better and yeah in i guess in terms of like in terms of having having to be shown for at least a week in certain places i find really odd like as we're going forward and also it i think it's a, it's a measure that's trying to be inclusive but actually isn't because by then mm. you're saying like like it it's entrenching this idea that certain cities can only be cultural do you know what i mean and it's not and it's not to say that like those places aren't huge um kind of centers of culture but it's it's like saying you know people in the midwest can't have it i I think it's creating a kind of it's perpetuating a problem when it's thinking it's trying to solve one you know because Mm. it's not a lot of distributors just don't have the money to roll out in various different, like limited release films. How How is a public ever going to kind of discover them? And I'm rambling a bit here. Surprise, surprise. But like <laughs> something, something like a Kelly Reichardt film that may become like a critical darling because, you know, the newspaper gets a better distribution than the film does. And so no wonder there's yeah. this kind of perpetual cycle of like, oh, it's not able to make money because it's not going into these screens. Um, but yeah, I think it's, I mean, maybe we all just need to, you know, like you say, how well that will go down with older members. I mean, they kind of just have to adapt. Like when, mm. you know, like they shouldn't be the ones necessarily holding 
support anymore over these things. If it means yeah. a better, more secure, surely? No, I don't know. <laughs> it's. I think it's it's fairly easy for people to pick these things up. Essentially, what they would do is, you know, they would say, okay, um, we're we're putting a lot of money into our online screening room and providing people with links and you know the only the only thing as someone who has had to vote in critics awards and things like that is just making sure that it's as easy to use as possible for everyone because like i'm you know fairly tech savvy and whatever you know but like sometimes i would get links and it would be pretty much impossible to watch it on anything other than a laptop it would be very hard to get it to go onto a tv or whatever and i feel like which you know is still not as good as seeing something in a theatre, but it's at least a better approximation than kind of sitting there watching it on your laptop with your headphones in. So it's like, as long as you can, you know, provide people with a service that provides them with like a decent high high quality stream of the movie and will allow them to enjoy it on a decent quality on whatever system they have, then at the very least, you know, that would be, a decent or even maybe even superior substitution to sending out dvds which are you know very very wasteful in terms of just the packaging the amount of resources it takes to produce them every year for all the thousands of members of the academy yeah it just seems like the main thing there is if as long as they ensure that the service itself is good and that it's easy to use then presumably it wouldn't be too hopefully it wouldn't be too much of a problem mm. but yeah, but then there there will always be some people who just don't want to have to learn. <laughs> I'm sure that a lot of people who complain about the links now, probably 15 years ago, were just kind of like, what's what's wrong with VHSs? Yeah. Why, yeah. why do you have to go to these discs? Uh-huh. And so, yes, yeah, so speaking, of course, of movies that went from having a theatrical release to pretty much just a digital one, one of the other big stories this week was that uh, Universal announced that Trolls World Tour, the sequel to the movie Trolls, earned about $100 million from its release on home video, well, home media where people were able to rent it and stream it for a couple of days. And this got picked up by a lot of outlets who were kind of like talking about how, you know, it technically earned more than the first Trolls movie did, but or other people then chiming in saying like, well, the people who are making this report aren't really understanding what's being announced because the first troll was sure it made less than that in America, but worldwide it made way more than that. And also it probably earned double whatever it made in theaters on home media as well, when it was eventually released on Blu-ray and people rented it and when it, you know, got sold to streaming services and things like that. So there was this interesting bifurcated reaction where on the one hand there were these people saying like this is the future of cinema look how much money a movie can make if you put it out into theaters and other people uh, if you put it out onto streaming only and other people saying yeah it would make like a seventh of what, what the what a movie could make if you put it into theaters and you know whilst for some movies like um a, a movie that was announced going straight to streaming this week um over the summer is the king of staten island the new judd apatow movie which stars pete davidson which was meant to be getting a theatrical release and is now going to be put out onto vod they where the movie you know doesn't cost a huge amount and it's kind of a comedy with lower um expectations anyway it makes more sense for them to do that because the differential is probably not going to be as high as if you put it out on into theaters 
but for i think that, that there's a reason why like disney haven't put black widow out on on demand you know mm. they realize that whilst you can make a decent amount of change in the short term it's probably we're probably quite far away from a situation where there would be a parity between movies that get released just straight onto VOD making as much money as you know movies can potentially make in theaters mm. but then this led to some considerable fallout because uh, AMC who i believe are if they're not the biggest chain in the US they're certainly one of the biggest chains in the US announced that because Universal had, you know, kind of really talked to the money that they'd been making this and they hadn't respected the theatrical window. And I think also their rollout of their decision was not terribly well communicated to theatres. It was kind of like a last minute thing. They said that they won't be showing Universal movies once their theatres reopen. They won't be showing their movies for the foreseeable future, which, uh, yeah, in terms of, again, the future of the industry feels like a pretty significant decision to make albeit one whose effects won't be felt for an indeterminate period of time because for the moment it's very academic saying well we're not going to show your movies because you're not showing any movies <laughs> and then yes and also uh this week before we get onto the main topic there are a couple of um of deaths this week of kind of notable figures in the entertainment industry Irfan khan passed away a bollywood actor who is probably best known in the in the in the west in america for his roles in movies like some dog millionaire and uh jurassic world and things like that but who also was you know a huge star in bollywood and who was a big star uh particularly for the movie warrior which came out in 2001 uh, directed by asif kapadia which was like a, a really big hit someone who you know i i can't claim to have been massively familiar with his work but every time he showed up in something i always was just like completely delighted by him i always thought he was such a great presence and such a, a true movie star in the sense that whenever he was on you really couldn't take your eyes off of him oh i totally agree ed he had like his own center of gravity and everything was just like in his orbit he managed to be so incredibly grounded and very subtle and i love that <clears> style <throat> of acting like and i think also it's an eastern western you know the different styles he didn't have to kind of be thunderous he was very like quite internal about him and like you say that just meant that you couldn't take your eyes off him mm, and you could really see something like in something like life of pi where he plays like the grown-up narrator describing this incredible story you really did need that kind of grounding to really make the two separate realities of that movie worked like you really need to believe that this guy believed the story that he was telling and i felt like he brought a tremendous integrity and authenticity to everything that he did there's a really beautiful letter he wrote to his fans and supporters when he first got ill that i also recommend reading it's full of perspective and, and grace and very beautifully written and also this week, uh, Jill Gascoigne passed away, who, um, whose work I'm not massively familiar with, so uh, I don't know if you would like to kind of uh, talk on, on uh, Jill Gascoigne. Well, yeah, she was really incredible because she was, in terms of her career, noteworthy for being in The Gentle Touch, which is one of the first mm -hmm. female-fronted um, sort of cop shows 
um, well before um, Helen Mirren had suspect. And yeah, she was really amazing. And I didn't realise, but was married to Alfred Molina. Mm, yeah. And then, yeah, like for the past decade has been dealing with Alzheimer's and oh, yeah, just really, really sad. And I think at the moment it does feel, again, because we can't not have the context of, of COVID, it does feel quite relentless in terms of the loss for everyone just now and yeah but she yeah she's remarkable like a really interesting and and kind of kind of a shame that I mean maybe maybe you know fame is overrated but you know what I mean in terms of the respect around her career and what she um managed to do um by becoming I don't know in, in the gentle touch and she struggled with depression her whole life so that she did create her career and yeah remarkable so it's a shame there's not more understanding of her and 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 as we still have I think it's very easy to be retrospectively like oh weren't they amazing it's like well mm. maybe if we celebrated people particularly women more when they were alive <laughs> um it wouldn't quite seem so um oh, too late but yeah so we'll go on to our topic for this week our main topic and um, this was uh your your idea emily based on the fact that you have been watching hollywood the new show from ryan murphy his i believe his first production for netflix under the massive deal that he signed with them a few years ago and one of the things about um hollywood is it is somewhat of a reimagining of the hollywood story uh it's it's a world where there aren't anthropomorphic animals and no one at any point stole the d from the sign so that's quite interesting um but uh, yeah, so we wanted to talk about alternate histories, rewriting histories. I haven't watched Hollywood yet. I am very wary of Ryan Murphy. <laughs> he is someone who uh, I often find I'm good for about a series of anything he does. <laughs> but then, uh, you know, watched some of the first series of Nip Tuck until an episode where um, one of the main characters' son tried to give himself a circumcision at which point I tapped out, watched until the Joss Whedon-directed episode of Glee, and kind of thought, well, this show's probably not going to get better than this, so <laughs> I'll, I'll dip out now. And yeah, haven't really tried... None of the American horror stories have really stuck with me. So, so yeah, so I, I haven't felt the need to dive in. But you you have, Emily, so um, why don't you tell us a little bit about um, about Hollywood and what Murphy tries to do in terms of, you know, giving us a different view of Hollywood history. Okay, so I have not finished it, but I will in the next couple of days because I've only got a couple of episodes left. I absolutely inhaled it when it dropped. Mm. And you've got lots of people recurring from the Murphy verse, like um, Darren Chris, Dylan McDermott, um, Holland Taylor. It is such an interesting beast, right? I'm having mm. a, I am enjoying it so much. And it's a bit like it's gastropub telly, right? You know, it's mm -hmm. it's it's like all of your kind of greasy junk favourites done up with the best ingredients and so gourmet, but it's still trash. <laughs> there's no there's right. no getting away from that. It reminds me of that episode of The Simpsons where Bart is running for class president. And Homer paints that sign for him 
saying sex. Now I have your attention. Vote for Bart. Yeah. This is what Ryan <laughs> Murphy is doing. Sex. And now I've got your attention. Here's some social justice reimagining of Hollywood. What I think is really interesting is that we cannot say for a fact that this kind of stuff didn't happen because there's mm. so much of history that we don't that you know that isn't recorded or particularly around that kind of time in terms of what was appropriate or not how it kind of like falls away i mean i don't what i think is quite interesting is that he manages to do a lot of like plausible twists so patty lapone is just patty laponing all over the shop and it's great and she is married to Rob Reiner. I mean, people, come on. This is so much fun. Rob Reiner has a heart attack because he, in, in flagrante with one of his many um, studio bells, Mira Sorvino, come on through. And then he's constructed it so that um, if uh, his sort of power of attorney and, and stuff... But basically, Patty Lapone becomes the acting head of the studio whilst he's indisposed because mm. Rob Reiner doesn't want his kind of first, you know, um, second second hand man to take first position. And you're like, mm. that's, that's a plausible character motivation why she'd end up in place, right? So that's really great. And it is this kind of reimagining thing of what if you know, here's basically women, queer people and and um, people of colour, you know? Like, what, what, what if they were able to create? What happens if they, if they were sort of artists? And the thing that I think is so great about how it's played is that it's not some kind of... There's a lot of pain. There is a lot of struggle... It's not like everything suddenly hunky-dory better. There is a lot of... There's still creative differences. There's still time and money constraints. But it does feel like a... It, it, it does feel like two series in one. Like, the first two episodes are so unapologetically and giddily horny. And, like, everyone's having sex with each other. And I thought, oh, is this a, a fiction adaptation of the scotty bowers book full service mm. because scotty bowers real life guy um claims to have been sort of the the key um pimp slash sex worker for the golden age of hollywood mm. but after those first two episodes where we we have essentially a scotty bowers type discover the benefits of of sex work as he's trying to make it as an actor after that it just takes a full left turn and becomes this portrait of an alternative Hollywood but it's not it isn't like it isn't glee basically right and it's not American Horror Story I also Ryan Murphy the best thing he's done is pose that's how I feel about it and he's still I find him so interesting because I like everyone that he works with and I really admire that he is just fucking gunning for it Right? Like, mm. he is someone who... I mean, oh, an American crime story, like Versace. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah, those, those in Pose, for me, are like... You know, they are transcendent. That is like fucking art, right? 
Hollywood is not art, but I think it's such an amazing experiment. And I do really admire him for putting it all out there. And I've been watching so many of the Hollywood Reporter roundtables. And when he was on one of them, he's like, his manner is so interesting to me because he holds himself in quite a like earnest, he's quite quiet. Um, he seems quite serious. And he says, you know, the reason, and, and pe the other people at the table are kind of jokingly referring to like empires and stuff. And they all sort of look at him. And he's like, well, you just get so sick of hearing no, that as soon as people start saying yes to you, you just want to keep getting yeses. So he just doesn't mm. turn anything down. I mean, the I just thinking about the amount of work that he does makes me break out in a cold sweat. <laughs> like, <laughs> I do not understand how he is doing this. But I think there's something really... I just think Hollywood is so... It's just so fun and it is so interesting. It's not perfect, but it's got... I mean, this cast, oh my God, I know I cannot stop raving about the cast, but you've got Joe Mantinello of uh, Angels in America, who is giving this really beautiful performance. You've got uh, Jim Parsons playing Henry Wilson, kind of agent extraordinaire, scary, like eerily good. And also it's just kind of adorable because you do have like the one sort of main character who is based on a real person is we have rock hudson who is essentially mm. young dumb incredibly beautiful and really really sweet like kind of turning tricks and i think it's i mean yeah like i'm so interested to see how it will end because i'm not sure what the final message is yet mm -hmm. but there is so much value i think to this reimagining because i think it's probably not far off a lot of people's experiences then and we just haven't been able to hear about them so even trying to just imagine how they may be feeling i think is actually there's something quite beautiful and tender and empathetic about that um but yeah <laughs> there is also a lot of shagging uh so that's <laughs> that's in a in a sort of nutshell many feelings i'm having about hollywood ed i was very interested when people started talking about it as being an alternative history because i remember when the trailer dropped and like i say it as if it dropped like seven years ago it was like a week ago but a week is seven years now but like yeah like the when the trailer dropped like a lot of people were particularly people who are experts in hollywood history and all this sort of stuff seemed to react very negatively to it in terms of like the choices in certain pieces of casting and the general tone of it and i think there was a general sense of like oh this guy's just like playing really fast and loose with the actual history of hollywood this like really interesting thing and he's trying to particularly in terms of like netflix in general not having a great relationship with Hollywood history in terms of not having many older movies, but at the same time trying to portray themselves as these these kind of saviors of it through, you know, doing the Orson Welles other side of the wind thing and all that sort of stuff. Um, this idea of them trying to erase history and replace it with something of their own. And that seemed to set people's um, hackles up quite a bit about it before it even debuted. So it was interesting thinking, oh, that's jet that they are not trying to hide the fact that this is just like an alternate history, which I think is quite interesting. I wonder if maybe that had been more foregrounded 
in the initial kind of discussion of the series or when details were released about it, people may not have felt kind of so negatively. I mean, they probably still would because, like, Murphy tends to be a divisive figure. But I do wonder if maybe that would have been... It would have been received, like, in a different way if that had been foregrounded as opposed to people thinking that, you know, there was some sort of weird attempt to kind of like whitewash history in a way or to just kind of like come up with this complete nonsense that people wouldn't be able to tell the difference from real history yeah i think and at this time in in culture and geopolitically it is worrying because there is a it can be weaponized right alternative <clears throat> alternate histories and yeah. at, a, at a time when like the truth and reality seem to be under attack in a way that they have not it has not been <laughs> for a long time and proliferation of conspiracy theories and even like now how horrific like misinformation is spreading but i think i'm so amazed at how i'm coming out to bat for hollywood ed but like <laughs> <laughs> but it that i think has it has a different feeling to it in terms of its intentions i think its intentions can be read as these are people who have been forgotten like maybe it's actually on because hollywood maybe actually even though i've sort of suggested this as a topic maybe it isn't a reimagined history because it it is kind of putting forward well these people probably did exist but but weren't heard and the reimagining is, oh, what if they manage to get some success and some power? And even that is through very plausible, oh, it kind of fell into their laps way rather than through like campaigning or saying everyone suddenly changed their mind about women, <laughs> people who weren't white and, and queer people, right? Um, <clears throat> and I think the kind of, the thing about, I think in, like other examples, right, of, of things that are definitely reimagined. I mean, it's probably Quentin Tarantino's like big trick of the past, his past couple of films has been, oh, this is what actually, <laughs> I'm saying this happened, Hitler was blown up and um, Sharon Tate was never murdered. Um, <clears throat> and I question that because that feels a bit more like, I don't know that feels a bit more like sticking it in in people's faces. I don't I don't feel like that's as ben, it comes across as benevolently as maybe it's meant. Um mm -hmm. and the one that really got got me my heckles up which I didn't expect it to was Wonder Woman and World War oh, yeah. and World War 1. Like mm -hmm. I I'm not a fan of the film Wonder Woman at all as you can probably sense ed but this in particular i was like i don't understand how anyone can say this is like a great empowering brilliant thing as she's like striding across no man's land during the stalemate i was like this actually happened like mm -hmm. i don't really like i mean because you could do anything like we start on you know we start with a matriarchal <laughs> like goddesses right we we it's not like it's not like we couldn't fabricate a convincing conflict somewhere else mm. because but I just because I just couldn't get it. Why World War One? Why when people? I 
and, and I'm not normally someone who's like, ban this filth, this is distasteful. But like, it hit me in the gut. I was like, I, this doesn't feel particularly respectful. Yeah, like, I mean, I I haven't seen Wonder Woman since I saw it in the theatre and I enjoyed it well enough. Although, I, like, like all of the DC movies, like, the last half hour is just, like, complete nonsense. Yeah. Just, like, it, it, it's like, oh, it's just fighting a CGI monster or something. Who cares? David Thewlis isn't immediately apparent as a character anymore, so why should I care about that movie? <laughs> but... Yeah, I, I, I could definitely see your point in terms of, like, when you take a conflict that was so brutal and so pointless and, like, had such catastrophic death associated for it, and then you inject, oh, this superhero human character who, like, I don't know, could have ended it all if she wanted to. Yeah. It seems like that was within her power. Like, you have to make it really contrived to explain a world where she read where she rejoins it and then you know she has this one moment where she kind of like breaks through the enemy lines and then you know beats a lot of people up and to the great Hans Zimmer um Wonder Woman theme that he composed for it but then also was like cool I'm just going to kind of be anonymous for a long time and <laughs> yeah. just kind of no one's going to really think about me or you know that's kind of a conceptual problem of like the DC thing where they introduce Wonder Woman in the previous movie and then suddenly they have to explain, oh yeah, she was there the whole time. Yeah. Um, but I guess she wasn't helping. It weirdly has a similar problem to the last Transformers movie, The Last Night, which explains that Transformers have existed throughout human history and have always been on the side of good. But that just makes you think, including, I believe, at one point, helping Harriet Tubman, which makes you think, why did they let slavery start <laughs> they decided yes! at some point they were going to stop it <laughs> like it just opens way too many questions to inject these kind of like fantastical beings into into real life events in a way that particularly ones where you would think oh they would want to help it's not like yeah. you know Anne Rice having vampires exist in in New Orleans in the 19th century it's like yeah it's fine you can imagine that they would live there because they would be trying to hide the fact that there are these like magical creatures existing no. not you know these are super powered beings who want to help people but apparently they don't want to help you too much <laughs> they don't want the war to end too quickly but yeah in terms of um I guess kind of like the motivations for some of these sort of stories as well I think it's really interesting when you think about alternate histories because on the one hand you have something like once upon a time in hollywood which i think to me feels more personal for quentin tarantino than either inglorious bastards or django unchained which are alternate histories in their own way you know the idea of killing hitler in a movie theater or the idea of a slave being able to become free and then to take brutal revenge against um, some of rep figures who represent the kind of like the power structure which are more kind of him looking at these terrible things in history and thinking this is awful I really wish there was some way for me to exact my feelings of how awful this is brutally whereas I feel like the, for me the work of art that um, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood most reminded me of was Neutral Milk Hotels in an Airplane Over the Sea mm which was an album that Jeff Mangum wrote pretty much entirely about how he was so moved by the story of Anne Frank that it's all kind of him trying to work through his feelings of wanting to have saved her and protected her. Um, and that's kind of the thing that I think 
is dry under underpinning a lot of the stuff in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, yeah. and why I personally found it quite moving because I too like whenever I read about the stories of you know what the Manson family did and uh, Sharon Tate's death in particular, just find that to be just so brutally senseless and horrible and just such a you know wrong person in the wrong place at the wrong time sort of situation that I can understand someone reading that and thinking you know what if I could what could I do if I could rewrite this you know what if they went to the wrong house and yeah. instead they got a can of dog food to the face yeah so I can understand that kind of, there, there's kind of like a personal thing of you just see this terrible thing in history and thinking I wish I could spare these people this pain mm. but then in other cases you know I think um, alternate history in particular in terms of speculative fiction and science fiction it's often interesting for people to kind of like use as a way of commenting on where society is now by offering an alternative um probably a lot of this is in american history because america you know deeply fucked up country um lots of things to make interesting comparisons to uh, one of the first things i thought of for this was the mockumentary csa which was uh, a documentary that came out 16 years ago or something at this point and it was a mockumentary imagining that the south had won the civil war itself just like something that people have written about thousands of times <laughs> like there's so many the south won stories out there including ones that psychopaths tell themselves now but you know in fiction it's something that a lot of people have done a lot and this one was like a very clever illustration of you know not only saying what would it be like if the south had been allowed to actually had actually won a kind of uh, taken over the whole country and you know they they kind of instituted slavery was this thing that had gone on for a long time but also using it to cleverly comment on the racial inequalities that still exist in america and so that's very much like there are definitely examples of this of also something like uh philip roth's the plot against america which has also just recently been adapted as a as a, as a miniseries for hbo where this idea of what if charles Lindbergh had won the U.S. presidential election in 1940, uh, America hadn't got into the war, and there'd been this like rising tide of anti-Semitism. Using that as a metaphor through which to explore the ways in which other minorities today are discriminated against, particularly David David Simon, um, who wrote the adaptation of the show for HBO, specifically said, you know, he wanted to use it to provide kind of like this viewpoint on what like muslims and latinos and all these groups that are othered and discriminated against in america would feel by providing you know the experience through the, the experience of jewish characters who <sighs> until recently <laughs> until the last few years um had not you know kind of had as much of that aimed at them yes of course that um also makes me think of the man in the high castle um <clears throat> yeah. and there is a lot of kind of at the big moments of history and kind of deciding our modern world obviously there's a lot of kind of oh what if it was like kind of treating it a little bit like a toying cost like oh what if the other side won mm -hmm. and I think when it's like you say Ed because CSA sounds really interesting because just thinking of the flack that oh why do I always get their names wrong Benioff and Weiss the yeah there we go the Game of Thrones yeah. guys uh, that they were talking about doing a series about the basically exactly that if the Confederate side had won the Civil War mm -hmm. and I think 
and I definitely remember being like, ooh, not sure this is for you too. <laughs> yeah. Because even without knowing the detail, just off the, you'd need to know a lot of detail for that to be okay. Um, mm. Because when it when it's done well, I think, you know, alternate histories kind of will, will elucidate things about now. Like you say, it's speculative fiction, really. It's kind of sci-fi, but instead of aliens, the world is very much like our own, but you know, we we are we are the strange life forms in this alternate timeline. Mm. And I think the tricky thing is, it is such a delicate balance, isn't it? Because whilst I think there is something very moving and human about wanting to save people from pain, um, mm-hmm. I also think you can tip very easily into a savior complex. Yeah, and that's that's what all of this hinges on really Mm. although in some cases it's less about sometimes it could be less of a savior complex and just be kind of like wow things would be way worse yeah Yeah. Yeah. coming from a sense of like like the example i always go to and it's a comedic example in totally but the episode of red dwarf where they accidentally stop kennedy being assassinated yeah where they um, if I remember correctly, I think they knock Lee Harvey Oswald out of the building when they when they appear in the book depository and they accidentally knock him out and then suddenly JFK survives and then they try to travel back uh, forward in time and they realise that they can't and they discover that the reason why is like, oh, he remained president but he, the, the mafia had um, the mafia had leverage on him which you know distracted from the the competition with russia russia ended up winning the space race and all all this kind of like stuff which results in russia essentially winning the cold war and that is very much kind of like an interesting example where a it's a one-off so you know obviously red dwarf don't have to think too much about the ramifications for it but it's an interesting idea of of saying you know be careful what you wish for this also is kind of true in it's definitely true in fact in stephen king's uh 11 which is also about trying to solve stop kennedy being assassinated and also ends with uh, the world being a nuclear waste dump because things go bad and it's yeah it's a very it, it can be like just a base a case of people saying like yeah you think it's bad now but you never know how, what the ramifications what the butterfly effect of all this actually is like yeah. you make this one change and you think this can obviously, with this uncategorically, will lead to good things, but then having like ripple effects that you couldn't foresee going out. Which also, I think, is just why it's such a hard thing to do. <laughs> it's such a hard kind of fiction to write because you really do have to kind of, unless you're looking at an incredibly like narrow band of time, you have to kind of think about all the possible ramifications and try and fill out the world in a way that feels real and if you get it wrong people will just feel like you're just doing this kind of like hacky one note idea although like uh, something that i do feel does a good job of filling in those details is the michael chabon book the yiddish policeman's union which does have all of these fun little well i say fun it's a very depressing book but um <laughs> michael shabon fun <laughs> i know that genre. Uh, <laughs> yeah uh where you know there are little details about how one point the main character talks about going to watch orson wells's heart of darkness with his wife you know there's like all these things where he's clearly thought about what 
unexpected things would change in this world in which you know israel doesn't exist and all jews live apart in this kind of like stretch of land in alaska um and so like part of that is just imagining would pop culture change in different ways and the fun thing there is you don't really have to explain it (laughs) you don't have to explain why exactly this particular change resulted in orson wells being able to make heart make hearts of darkness a movie that he you know tried to make for years and just could never make happen but it's kind of fun to imagine like it's kind of fun to pepper in those details in a work like that to just really emphasize you know that the landscape of culture is irrevocably different because of you know this one change one of the kind of things i noticed in looking through examples is it feels as if we are getting more alternate histories now Mm. in film and television um as i said earlier it's kind of something that's been around for a long time in literature and i think a lot of that is down to cost it's a lot easier to imagine a world that is just written than the actual you know like the, like uh, the Cohen brothers tried to make Yiddish Policeman's Union for years and years and years, and it's just really hard to kind of get the funding together for doing a like a period piece of that scale. And I feel a lot of the reasons for why you can have something like Watchmen now, which you know the TV series of was is it like totally an alternate history, as the comic was as well. But you know the the series was extrapolating thirty years into the future and imagining an alternate present to ours based on the comic. And so a lot of that is down to just technology advancing. It's cheaper to do that stuff now. It's cheaper to do all the CGI that, you know, they needed to use in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood to create recreate 60s LA and all that sort of stuff. Um, do you... <laughs> my question to you, Emily, and I've been thinking of, is, is are we getting more of these sort of things now purely due to technology? Or do you really feel as if... Do you think a lot of people think things have gone off the rails <laughs> and people are trying to kind of... <laughs> are thinking about those stories more i'm gonna be that that uh irritating i'm gonna say something very irritating which is a bit of both ed mm-hmm. <laughs> i mean that's probably the right answer but right. Yeah. i think you're right i think but that's kind of covers the motivation and the means right because mm. it's a combination of the two you couldn't really do it without the technology and the craft but now there's more of a need for it. And I think it would be really yeah. fun if more series turn out to be reimagined histories. Like, come on, let's just do something wild with the crown, yeah? For the last couple <laughs> of series. Let's just say all sorts of stuff did and didn't happen. Yeah, you get to the 90s and some stuff starts happening around 1997. Yeah, I think uh, I think something, <laughs> something might have occurred, eh, Ed? What hadn't occurred to me is your point, which I think is correct, which is things could be so much worse. I think Mm. there's a need to try and believe that everything isn't going to shit. And I think think it's an awful and tumultuous time, but things are also, depending on how you want to look at the data for the species over the world, a lot better than they have been for many years in some ways but at the moment i am very much in community this is the darkest timeline (laughs) feeling Mm. (laughs) but i don't know whether a reimagined history would make me feel any better strangely and this is why i think hollywood is is quite sweet because it's not trying to play savior it's not running into savior complex it's such a weird little experiment and 
that it does just start off with frantic rutting and then we just take a completely different gear. I always just can't believe it, Ed. I think that's that's the thing about imagined history, isn't it? It's not there to be. <laughs> it's not there to be believed. You have to suspend it. Mm, yeah. Yeah, I'm trying to think of any other ones that where you look at anything that oh, this is unabashedly positive in terms of the alternate history. Yeah. Because in a lot of cases, it is more like a contrast. Oh, that's also something you see with like parallel universe stories, like the later series of Fringe, which introduced the idea of like parallel universes, and you kind of like see this alternate version of Earth where one of the main characters' children died. Well, well, actually, no, I I can't go into it now. Spoilers, but basically, (laughs) that character suffered a, 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 a tragedy earlier in their life and they became a much darker version of the character that you you see it's all very much in the kind of like oh like this one thing had a ripple effect which led to things in this alternate universe in some cases being more technologically advanced but in a lot of cases it thing being kind of much worse and causing a lot of these kind of fringe events that um the main characters in, uh, investigate in their universe to occur and yeah, like it always feels as if the contrast is more to be, you know, like like I said earlier, like it's, hey, be careful what you wish for, sort of thing. Where, like, oh, the only the only other example I can think of, and it just occurred to me now, are the, um, the spider, not the the Spider Verse movie that came out a couple of years ago, but in the nineties there was an adaptation of the Spider Man Spider Verse thing, where, um, in the 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 animated series where there was one version of Peter Parker where Uncle Ben didn't die and he just became really rich and happy. (laughs) (laughs) He just had had a really nice life. And that's the only one example I can think of. Although that does play into it because there's a a Spider-Man carnage who's wreaking havoc across the universe. And the way they defeat him is that um, they bring Uncle Ben to talk to him and like him seeing his dead uncle like is what kind of causes him to have this kind of revelation. It's like a real... Real sweet moment. But yeah, that's the yeah. only one I can think of where it's almost like comedically great how, how great this guy's life ended up being because his uncle didn't get shot on the street. I think it's a very human thing to want to simplify life mm-hmm. and say, oh, you know, that thing happened and therefore this is how I am. Like, yeah. and that's how narrative works in terms of inciting incidents and plot points, right? The inciting incident is so important because without that, how does the rest of the narrative work as a as a machine, as an engine? And there's that nice kind of slightly sort of bittersweet moment in Spider Verse where they all realise, you know, well, it's to do with Uncle Ben. Like that was the person and the event that had, you know, without that happening to Uncle Ben, you would not have Spider Man. But I think sometimes it's just a bit reductive. Yeah. And, I, and I think the art that really strikes me and that is so important are things that appreciate multiple factors and show that nuance and the subtlety of what it is actually to live as a human being, that these things do have effects on you, but it's not quite as simple as one thing going one way or another. And even though mm. I've, I've been bitterly disappointed and uh, politically in terms of, you know, it going one way rather than the other, there's so much behind that in terms of the causes of even that thing mm. happening. 
and not to get too sort of like Copenhagen theory and cause and effect on on our uh, on shot reverse shot, which um, last I checked wasn't really to do with sort of quantum physics. Um, <laughs> although I do talk about quantum leap a lot anyway. Um, oh my god, we haven't even mentioned quantum leap. Fuck. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Imagine histories. Oh, or sliders. Geez. Yes. Shit. Oh fuck. There's so much, Ed. Maybe I'll rewatch <laughs> it and but. You know, I think there's, I think that's maybe why reimagined histories are so appealing because we want to think, oh, if that just hadn't happened, everything would be better. Mm, and I think yeah. there's some, you know, that's cute of us, but it's not, it's not weird, is it? Yeah, yeah, it's very much a kind of, even though the worlds that can emerge from those kind of stories can be very complicated and very detailed. Like in researching this, I. I can't remember the name of it now because it was it was in Japanese. I don't speak Japanese, but there's a like a there was a novel that was cited as like a really key example of an alternate history, which was literally like this guy imagined four hundred years of Japanese history in an alternate reality. It's like wow, that's very detailed. That seems like a lot of work to kind of really make all of that hang together. But um, as complicated and you know complex as some of those worlds can be, I think it does come from a kind of very childish, very plaintive thing of thinking, "Oh no, what if I didn't smash that cup or something? Yeah, like what if I didn't do the thing that uh, I regret, or yeah. what if I yeah, or you know if I could change that one thing that caused some negative ripple and." ultimately uh yeah that's just like one of the things in life you end up having to accept is you can't undo everything you can't make things right and as much as people exploring that in art can be very moving like you know i like i still listen to uh in the airplane under the sea every so often and find it very moving i do find the ending of of once upon a time in hollywood to be quite moving um yeah it's it's very limiting in terms of what it can really offer you mm. So we end this episode as we end all our episodes of Shot Reverse Shot Recommends in which we talk about a piece of culture that we've enjoyed and we think you, the listeners, will enjoy as well. Emily, what have you got to recommend for the listeners this week? It's got to be Hollywood. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, go on, guys. Get stuck in and be as baffled and entertained as I am. <laughs> cool. Uh, I am going to recommend uh, a book I finished week reading this week called Console Wars. I think I mentioned it in the past before, but I don't think I recommended it. Um, but it's very good. It's a account of the rivalry between Sega and Nintendo in the early 90s when the, as, as it was known to me in the UK and as many people in the UK, the Mega Drive, but in the US as the Genesis, became this kind of uh, cultural phenomenon and really kind of rivaled Nintendo's dominance of the video game industry where you go from Nintendo controlling literally 90% of the home console market in the late 80s to Sega more or less achieving parity before before Sony came along and completely blew everything up and changed things irrevocably. It's a really good entertaining account of the history of both companies during that time where you you are introduced to all these kind of like fascinating people who are in competition with each other and have these kind of really heated rivalries um certainly as someone like me who's been following video gaming for a long time it's fun to see them talk about the first ever e3 which was literally just a bunch of people sat in a room while people came up and talked <laughs> and like didn't have any of the glitz and glamour that we we associate with the event now and yeah, there's just lots of really fun, interesting stories. Like, yeah, my favorite 
being the explanation for how the character of Sonic the Hedgehog came to be created, which is that they had a competition at Sega and someone submitted a drawing which they later admitted was just literally Felix the Cat's head on Mickey Mouse's body. (laughs) (laughs) And it's filled with little stories like that and these kind of like just just lots of weird stuff. And anyone who's followed the the arc of Sega as well, it makes it very interesting because particularly for me, someone who grew up playing Sega games on the Mega Drive and has always assumed they were this like huge, big, important company that just kind of faded away. It's really funny to read a book where you realize, oh, they were big for like three years. <laughs> then then it all went to shit when they put out the Saturn. Um, but yes, it's it's a very fun, very good book. It's being turned into a documentary, I believe, which is due to come out next year, which should be quite interesting. And also there's talk of it being adapted as a limited run TV series. So it'll be interesting to see if either of those end up taking shape, because I think it's a really, really fun story that people uh, should check out in whatever form they can. But currently the book's the only one. So yeah, definitely check out Console Wars, which is by Blake J. Harris. If you've enjoyed this episode of the podcast, then please subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, Player FM, Spotify, all the usual places, rate us, review us, and recommend us to your friends. It's the best way to help us grow our audience. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter, where we are at SRS underscore podcast. We'll be back next time with something entirely different. Until then, it's goodbye from me. And goodbye from me.